wonderful, majestic world around us. It's time for Dear Science. Thanks to Motat, the museum inspiring the innovators of tomorrow. Kia ora, Ellen. Hey, Millie. Hey, Beth. Hello. How are we? <laughs> We're going very well, very well. <laughs> it's a stunning day today, finally. I know. Yes. Beautiful out there. Right, what are we going to talk about today? What are we going to talk about today? <laughs> <laughs> well, interesting stuff, I hope. Yeah, but, um, exactly. We're going to start off talking about superconductors. Wow. What do we know about superconductors? They are super <laughs> at conducting. <laughs> they are indeed. They are indeed. So, before we get into the story about superconductors, we better talk a little bit about what they are and why they are important. And... Mm. Okay, so whenever electricity flows through a wire, you always lose some. And you lose some because the wire has resistance, okay? Mm -hmm. And so you lose some of that energy as heat. And you might think, well, that's unimportant. But um, I think they've done estimates around about sort of when you're transporting energy on your big wires and pylons and stuff like that from all of the uh, mm -hmm. hydro storage lakes down south, um, you lose about 6%. I think, um, just in heat, just in re resistive losses of um, energy. That's a heck of a lot. It is, it is rather a lot in these um, times. And so ideally what we would want to be able to do is to transport electricity without losing it, without losing any. Ooh. And there is a way to do that is to use superconducting wire. Mm -hmm. So superconductors are things that you can put electricity through and you don't lose any of it at mm. all, okay? I know, I know. Wouldn't Surprise that be face nice? me. <laughs> <laughs> it would be nice. And this has been known since the early years of the 20th century that if you cool things down to really, 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 really cold, like a few degrees above absolute zero, you can make them superconduct certain things anyway. Okay. Now, that's kind of not particularly practical. Um, because obviously you need large amounts of liquid helium to get you down to those temperatures and helium is not particularly abundant unfortunately and getting less and less and less so. So um, the, the search I guess has been on for many many years now trying to make uh, materials that can superconduct at higher temperatures and there was a big advance made in the middle of 80s in the mid 80s where they managed to make the first superconductor that would superconduct at liquid nitrogen temperatures, okay? Mm. Um, and that makes life a lot easier because liquid nitrogen is a hell of a lot cheaper than liquid helium and there's a hell of a lot more of it around. Mm. Um, but again, still, it's a little bit awkward. Um, you'd like, ideally, to be able to work with these, or make a superconductor that works at room temperature, okay? Now, in addition to sort of the whole electricity thing, Mm -hmm. Have you ever been to Shanghai, maybe, yes. either of you? You have. Have yes. you? Did you go to the airport and then come in on the train? Um, well, we definitely came in at the airport. Okay, <laughs> so, so the they, they, they had a train called a maglev train, and maglev is short for magnetic levitation. Wow. And what actually happens is that because of superconductors, the train doesn't actually sit on the rails, it actually levitates above the rails. So therefore you get no friction. It's amazing. And so therefore they can go as fast as you want, basically. No energy so loss. It's the ah. hovering train. Indeed, the hovering train, yeah. So, um, and this is, um, you know, this this could be great. And I think the Japanese have made a, one of these that goes about 500k 
an hour, something like that. So, oh, you know, so it's going to be as quick as, as, as air travel and way less polluting and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, these things are kind of important. So the heat is on. Oh, no, the heat is on. I didn't mean that. But, um, there's, yeah, so there's a lot of interest in making a room temperature superconductor uh, right. because if you can do that, then you will win a Nobel Prize and you'll be very, very, very rich. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. It's a new philosopher's so, stone. And abso- <laughs> oh, absolutely. Couldn't put it better myself. <laughs> so there's a group over in Rochester, New York, at the University mm. of Rochester, led by a guy by the name of Ranga Dias. He's a professor there, and he and his group have reported in Nature last week um, a room temperature superconductor. Wow. No wow. way. Indeed. Indeed. And it is called um, nitrogen dope lutetium hydride. Is Whoa, how cool is that? Is there a shortened name? Yes, there is. NLH. NLH. <laughs> NLH. Nitrogen dope lutetium hydride. Okay. So, uh, yes, it works at room temperature, but they've got to pressurize it to around about 10,000 times atmospheric pressure before it does its thing, supposedly. Oh, okay. it's a pressure thing. So it's a pressure thing. So, But still, it's, it's doing it at room temperature, supposedly. Now, ordinarily, mm-hmm. news like this would be big. It would be picked up by all of your sort of local news sources and stuff. Um, and it would be trumpeted all around the place and saying that this is going to, you know, revolutionise humanity. So the question is, why isn't it? And the answer is because this guy's been there before, unfortunately. Um. And about three years ago, he also published a paper in Nature saying, yep, we've got this um, amazing room temperature superconductor and it works at much, 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 much higher pressure. And again, that, you know, big thing, big, big result. But late last year, that paper was um, retracted. Debunked. Well, not debunked so much. Well, kind of, I guess. But <laughs> there, there, are, there are questions about the legitimacy of the data, let's say, in mm. that paper. And people are talking towards maybe some data being made up or whatever. So, you know, mm. there's a few questions, let's say, and obviously enough questions to require the fact of that paper being retracted, which is about the worst possible thing that you can have as a scientist is to get a paper retracted. So he's the boy who cried superconductor. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I like it. Oh, yes, oh, yes, I he's like that. He's done it again, he's back. He, but the weird thing is, okay, so you've all heard of the journal Nature. Yeah. That's about the best science journal that there is. So... You know, fool me once, shame on me. Fool me twice, shame on you sort of thing. So um, it's quite extraordinary that this has got published in Nature after what happened to the first paper. So, look, you know, if this is real, it is obviously a massive, massive, massive advance in this um, area. Mm -hmm. And, um, but, you know, his previous paper, nobody could replicate Mm. things. So he made a different material and only he seemed to be able to make it. There was one of the big things in science is replication. You've got to be able to reproduce yeah. stuff. Mm. If you can't, then it doesn't count. Mm-hmm. And nobody could get his thing working the way that he did. So fingers uh, crossed. Yeah, well, we'll, we'll see. We'll see. But um, we'll there's see. there's there's lots more in this story um, yeah. coming, I'm sure. So yeah, yeah. We'll eyes see and what ears happens. peeled. Absolutely, we will keep you up to date here on Dear Science. Yes, and from <laughs> new discoveries to an even newer discovery. 
Insulin. Insulin. Yes. Well, it's not that new a discovery. <laughs> wow. <laughs> well, let's say it's always been around, but um, it was first isolated, I think, back in about the 1920s or so. And yeah. obviously, if there are any type 1 diabetics out there listening, they will know the importance of insulin. I'm sure the general public know the importance of insulin and uh, regulating blood sugar. And... Um, you know, it's very, very effective at what it does. And um, so you might think now that we would know all that there is to know about insulin, because as I say, you know, we've, we've known it for 100 years. We know what it's made of. We know it's mm-hmm. made of 51 amino acids. And mm-hmm. that makes it a big, long molecule, okay? Mm-hmm. Big, like, big, big piece of string sort of thing, okay? And... Um, now, because it's so long, what it can do is it can sort of um, interact with itself yeah. and it can group up, essentially. So insulin molecules, what they do, they can either be just by themselves, mm-hmm. which we call monomers, or they can get together with one other insulin molecule and mm-hmm. whatever, and so we call those dimers, or they can get together with six insulin molecules, yeah. and we call those hexamids. The party. Uh, absolutely, <laughs> yes. sports team. <laughs> <laughs> a basketball team and one reserve, I guess, yeah. So um, what was no, what is known about insulin is that it's really only the monomer form that's the active form. So that's the one that does the business with your blood sugar, okay? Yeah. And the dimer and the hexama seem to be inactive, yeah. But they can break down to form monomers and then they can go on to be active. So there's workers at uh, where are the University of Copenhagen and Aarhus uh, in Denmark. Now, what they have shown is that we really uh, don't know as much as we thought about insulin. And specifically, what we don't know is the amount of monomer in mm. this mixture. Okay, so in any mixture of insulin, you're going to have monomer, dimer, hexamer. And... Um, what people had thought was there was a particular amount of monomer in this mixture. These folk have shown through a variety of really sort of up-to-date techniques that no, there's not as much monomer there as people have thought. And in fact, there's only about half as much as people have thought. Does this reduce the efficiency? Bang, there you go. Okay, so that's... That's going to be really, really important because um, it's it's meaning basically that we've been making up these formulations of insulin all over the years, assuming a particular amount of monomer. There's not that much in there. So what this may well mean, may being the operative word because this has been done in vitro, okay? So it hasn't been done in vivo. It's been done in vitro. No reason to think that it might not be different in vivo, but again, we'll see. Um but it may lead to, or and, and, and if this is shown to be correct, it should lead to new formulations of insulin in which the amount of monomer then is maximised. Okay? Right. So they can, they can fiddle around with this sort of stuff and um, you know, play chemical games and everything and get them out there that they want. But at the moment it seems that very possibly the formulations that are being used are more dilute, let's say, than people have thought that they... Ah, so mm-hmm. that could make a real, real difference to people's lives. Um, yeah. What I loved mm. about the study is at the end they were like, you know, it can make you feel really bad, but 
maybe not anymore yeah. <laughs> maybe people will feel great yeah yeah maybe so, they've just been having the wrong dose the whole time well ex- yeah exactly that's that's essentially what it is mm. that you know they've, they've essentially been underdosed if yes. if this is the case in the body so Again, as usual with many stories on Dear Science, you know, watch this space. Always Mm. learning. Absolutely. Always learning. And (laughs) we've learned something new about oxygen. I know. And too much is bad for you. Who knew? (laughs) I thought you could never have too much oxygen. Well, there you go. That's a really, really good point. And, you know, they had these oxygen bars overseas and stuff like that where you go around inhaling, you know, pure oxygen and everything. No, it can be bad for you. Yeah. Okay. And, in fact, what can happen is that it can lead to tissue damage, organ damage, and you can even die from too much oxygen. Okay, that's okay. bad. <laughs> Which is probably why it's a good thing there's only 21% of oxygen in the air that we breathe. Mm, yeah. Okay, how because do they find this out? How does one uh, have too much oxygen? Yeah, well, <laughs> again, you know, so this, this has been known for quite some time, actually. Mm. But what has not been known is the reason why. Okay, so huh? why is too much bad for you? What's actually going on at the real sort of molecular level? Okay, because, you know, oxygen is, is necessary for life, obviously. Mm. You know, it's, it's really important stuff. But, you know, too much of a good thing can, can, <laughs> can be bad for you. Sure can. So these researchers in San Francisco at a place called the Gladstone Institute... Um, oh, this this is just incredible work, just <laughs> utterly mind-boggling. So what they did, they took individual human cells and using this gene editing technique called CRISPR, which you may or may not have heard of, yeah, so it, won, it won the Nobel Prize a couple of years ago. Um, what they did, they took out one gene at a time out of 20,000 human cells. So they did this to 20,000 different human cells and they took out a different gene out of Mm. each of them. (laughs) My goodness me, that's just mind-blowing that they can do this. And then what they did with these cells, after they'd taken the particular genes out, they then looked at their growth rates in 21% oxygen, which is normal air, Mm. and in 50% oxygen which is obviously lots and lots and lots of oxygen. And what they found was that, um, okay, a lot of them were unaffected, but they sort of found four sort of pathways, four sort of sets of these cells that appeared to be affected by too much oxygen. Mm -hmm. Okay, and so they looked at these sets of cells and they're thinking, okay, so what's the similarity between them? Why are these ones being affected by too much oxygen and the vast majority not? And Mm -hmm. they got it down to the fact that these um, cells all had in common the fact that they've got these things called iron sulfur proteins in them, okay? Iron sulfur proteins, there's two good (laughs) elements there. Now, iron sulfur proteins, we're full of them. And what they do is they help electrons move around. Mm-hmm. Okay, in particular chemical processes, which is really rather important. Um, and as the name suggests, they contain both iron and they contain both sulfur, or sulfur as well. Okay, now both of those elements can react with oxygen and be oxidized. And wow. so the workers are thinking, yeah, well, this is actually what's going on that this iron sulfur unit in this protein is susceptible to reaction with oxygen. And then once it reacts with oxygen, it's no longer 
reactive. It can no longer do its job oh. of shuttling electrons around. And so therefore the surrounding um, material um, gets too much oxygen in it and then that ends up being bad. And that's it. where so, the damage is. And that's where the damage is. So <laughs> essentially what you're doing is you're rusting. Essentially. Oh, wow. <laughs> Inside <laughs> rusting. Oh Internal rust, yeah. So, um, But, I mean, God, the work that has gone into that study to, to just <laughs> remove 20,000 genes. Oh, my when goodness. When Alan it's sent this through, he said, I wish my students worked that hard. <laughs> so shout out to Alan. might be listening. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, of course they work that hard. My goodness, they're there at all hours. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much. Ellen. Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. And thank you, Motor. Amen. <laughs> well, I didn't know that before. Dear Science, thanks to Motat, the museum inspiring the innovators of tomorrow.